All right, guys, y'all may be seated. We're going to dismiss our kiddos and let them head to Children's Church. And uh, I will tell you this, we're going to that building another two or three weeks, and this one is almost finished. Our new children's wing is about finished, and uh, we are so excited to have all that done. The carpet is about 85% laid, and then we'll move some furniture back in, and hopefully in the next week to two weeks, be able to start using that building uh, for our kiddos. And uh, it is going to be really cool. I, I can't wait for you guys to all see it and see how it's been designed uh, to help uh, us better minister to our kiddos. So I hope they go and have a good time today over there. Well, we've been in a a series in the book of Hebrews over the last several weeks, and I want to continue in that series today. And I think it's kind of neat the way that it's fallen on Easter for us to look at the passage we'll be looking at today in chapter 8. The book of Hebrews has um, up to this point kind of progressed, and today he's going to kind of give us a summary statement of the, the first seven chapters. And what he's been saying to us. And, and I, I want to remind you, because some of you have been with us and some of you uh, are just kind of jumping in with us today, but the, the book of Hebrews was written to Christians who had come to faith in Christ. They came out of the Jewish faith. Uh, most of them, uh, in the very beginning, came out of the Jewish faith, entered into this Christian uh, faith with the Lord. And then as they kind of rocked along, uh, began to kind of be drawn back into some of those practices of Judaism. A lot of the, the works theology, a lot of the, the sacrificial system, uh, when they would fall flat on their face, as Christians do, uh, they're like, man, how do we show God that we're sorry? And their Jewish friends were saying to them, well, you need to come back and offer another sacrifice. That's, that's what you do. When you, when you fall short, you offer a sacrifice, and, and you kiss and you make up. And, and so the Jewish friends were calling them back into this legalism, back into this... Uh, sacrificial system, and the writer of Hebrews is trying to say to them, listen, there was one sacrifice necessary for your salvation. It covers your past sins, your present sins, and any sins that you will commit in the future. And that sacrifice was Jesus, and there's no need for you to go back into the temple and continue to do this works theology. Um, And so you ask and go, well, okay, we don't do that anymore, so why is this book even important to us? If we're not going back into Judaism, if we're not going back into this this, you know, offering sacrifices and stuff like they used to do, then why do we need the book of Hebrews? We're not going to fall back into that trap. And we don't. We don't offer the, the animal sacrifices anymore. We don't have a temple where you bring your animals to your priest and you confess your sins over your animals and they slaughter your animal and sprinkle the blood. We don't do all of that. But we are very quick to run back to a works theology. We're very quick to say, okay, I'm, I'm saved by grace. I, I came and I confessed my sins, asked Jesus to save my heart and save my soul. And, and so I've done that. And, and now I've got to work really, really hard to be good for God. I've got to work really hard to get God to, to love me and accept me and, and keep liking me. And we rush back to a works theology. And that leads us back into a legalism which chokes the life out of the grace that Jesus poured out upon us. And so the writer of Hebrews has been building to this point, and he starts in chapter 8, what Zane just read to us. He says, now the point of what we're saying is this. So this is a summary statement that he's about to make. He's saying everything that we've just said leading up to this, talking about how Jesus is superior uh, to the, the, the priest and the prophets that came before him, the covenant that Jesus came to establish, this new covenant of grace, is superior to the old covenant of the law. And just as all of those things were, we, we've laid out where Christ was superior and, and, and the covenant was superior, he says, I want to show you what the point of all that is and why that matters in our lives. Jesus is going to say, and the writer of Hebrews is going to say to us here, that Jesus is the real priest, that all the other priests were just copies of the one that was to come. 
The passage that Zane just read talked about the, the difference between the, the copies and the patterns and, and the heavenly temple. And it was so important, he said, for, for Moses. When God gave Moses the blueprints, if you will, for the tabernacle and the temple that they were going to build, he says, be careful that you build it according to these plans that I gave to you on the mountain. And the reason for that was that everything in that pictured something that was going to be in heaven. And they wanted this earthly thing to be the picture that would accurately portray the reality of heaven. The priest in the Old Testament, guys, were were just snapshots. They were pictures of this priest named Jesus that would come and would offer the final sacrifice for us. The the lambs that they would slaughter and, and that they would do was a picture of Jesus, who the Bible says was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the the earth. Everything we see in this Old Testament system points forward to Jesus. It's a picture of the person. And I said to you a couple of weeks ago that, you know, my son lives out of town. And, and if I have a choice between looking at a picture of Ryan or being with Ryan, I'm going to take being with him every time. Now, when I can't be with him, I'll, I'll settle for a picture. But you always take the person over the picture, Okay. And in this case, you've got these priests that are the picture, the snapshot, the, the pattern or the copy that, the, that they're going to talk about today in today's passage. And all of that stuff was a copy or a pattern. Well, if it's a copy, that means it's not the original. Where is the original? The original is in heaven. The, the stuff that we saw in the Old Testament was just a copy of what is a picture of, of what was to come. And so uh, they're, they're pictures of the person. Um, we, we do things sometimes that, that are, and I know every illustration that you use in church, it, it, it falls down at some point. So bear with me here. But when we get ready to do a wedding, we've got a couple of weddings coming up in our church, and we will set up all the wedding party on the stage, and we'll get them all ready for this wedding. And, and many times what will happen is they'll have a stand-in that will stand in for the bride so that she can step back and she can look at the picture and make sure that everybody looks the way that she wants them to look and they're in the right places and everything looks as she's imagined it in her mind. And so they'll have a stand-in who will stand in for the bride. That's not the bride. It's just a stand-in who's going to fill in that night until it's time for the bride to take her place and to come. And, and that's a picture of what's going on in the Old Testament is that these priests are just stand-ins. They're just, they're just standing in and, 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 and filling in the picture, if you will, until the real high priest came. And so here's the picture in chapter 8. If we, if we look at this again, let's, let's kind of walk through this together. He says, the point of what we're saying is this, that we do have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Now, in the earthly temple, there was no seat in that inner sanctum. There was no seat in that holy of holies because the priest would come in once a year. He would offer the blood of the sacrifices and sprinkle it in there, and then he had to get back out. There was no place for him to sit. The difference is, here we see Jesus seated. His work is done. The work of atonement, the work of salvation has been done. And so he's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty, a place of power and authority that's been given to him. He is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent. So the, the temple was this, this, this shadow or this copy, but Jesus is serving for us on our behalf in the true tent, in the one that's in heaven. It's the tent, he says, that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So it was necessary for this priest, for Jesus, to have something to offer. Now, when we get into chapter 9 and chapter 10, he's going to talk about the difference in what the earthly priest would offer, the blood of bulls and goats, and what Jesus came to offer, which was his own blood on our behalf. 
So, Jesus, the, the, the earthly priest had something to offer. Jesus had something to offer. He says, now, if he was on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. Since there's already priests that are offering the gifts according to the law, that wasn't why Jesus came. They serve a copy. Again, not the original, but this copy. And it was a shadow of the heavenly things. Now, in order to have a shadow, what do you got to have? Light. And an object, right? We got shadows on the back wall. We got a light. We got the, the shadows on the back wall from these, these plants and the, the light hitting that. If you're going to have a shadow, you got to have some light and you got to have the, the original. You got to have this object. And, and, and a shadow can't hurt you. Some people, you know, we have a little saying, you're, you're scared of your shadow, okay? A shadow can't hurt you, but neither can the shadow bless you. The shadow is just a reflection of something that's there. And, and, and these priests served in this, this temple that was a shadow or a copy or a pattern uh, of, of what was to come. And so when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was told by God, make sure you do it exactly according to this pattern uh, that was shown you on the mountain. And, and he says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry. Now look at this. There's three things he mentions here. Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. So Christ's ministry is better than the priest's ministry. Just as the, as the covenant that Jesus mediates is better than the old covenant. The covenant of Jesus is a covenant of grace. We're not saved by what we do. We are saved by the grace of God. Our works can never save us. It occurred to me as I studied this and I, and I worked through the book of Hebrews that, that when we say that everything in the Old Testament that they did pointed forward to, to the reality of the New Testament, Another reality is the, the Old Testament, they did continual sacrifices, repeated again and again and again and again. These sacrifices were never ending. You, you had to offer sacrifices over and over again because you continued to fail over and over again. And those continual sacrifices remind us of our continual efforts to make ourselves right with God. And just like those sacrifices couldn't make the people right with God, neither can our continual efforts, all of our works, ever make us right with God. He's going to talk about this, the limit of this, this old covenant. But he says it, it, Christ obtained a ministry that's much more excellent, it, just as the old covenant is, is better than, the, than the, 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 new test, the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And then he says it's even enacted upon better promises, this promise of eternal life. The Old Testament system couldn't promise you eternal life. It just meant that, hey, for a little while, you're going to be, you're going to be in better shape with God. But it couldn't promise you eternity. The people in the Old Testament didn't get saved by offering their sacrifices. They got saved by putting their faith in the promise of God that he would send his son one day to die in our place and to shed his blood that, that, that our sins might be atoned for. So here we see that there's, there's, a, there's a, a better ministry, a better covenant, and a better promise. And then he says this, for if that first covenant, the covenant made with Moses and in and, 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 and the Old Testament people, if it had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. There would be no need for us to have, have, have waited for the Messiah to come. As we gather together here on Easter, guys, we, we celebrate the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the reason we needed a resurrection is because there was a death that took place. And that death took place by the design of God to cover the sins of all mankind. For thousands of years, they'd sacrifice animals. And that was a temporary covering. But the problem with sacrificing the animals was this. It couldn't change man's heart. 
if you don't grab a hold of anything else today, please grab this. All the sacrifices in the world, all these animal sacrifices, cannot change the heart of man. Didn't have the power to work within. And that's a problem. That's the fault with the law. That's the fault with the Old Testament covenant is that it couldn't change a person's heart. We, we look at the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt. And, and, man, they barely get their feet out of Egypt. And they're griping and complaining. And their hearts are saying, well, we just need to go back to Egypt. We just need to go back to Egypt. And, and you and I look at that story and go, how could you be slaves all your life? God, do everything he did to deliver you from Egypt. And then you get out in the wilderness and the first thing you want to do is go back. And that just doesn't make sense to us. And yet for us as Christians, we, we come to a place in our life where we recognize our sin and we repent and we turn to Jesus. And then it seems like it's no time at all that we're born into this family of God. And then what do we find ourselves doing? We find our hearts going back to that old sin, back to that old life. Here, here's, here's what's so neat is that the Old Testament law and the Old Testament sacrifices could not change a person's heart. That was the fault. And because that law couldn't do it, God had to have another way that would change our hearts. And that was to send his only son, Jesus, who would love and live and then die in our place. And he would give himself for us. And, and that, that act of grace and mercy and love that he poured out and that he showed as he hung on that cross... If that kind of a love doesn't win our hearts and it doesn't change our hearts, then nothing will. Nothing will. It's, it's watching God work through his son Jesus that, that gives us this hope that we, that we have in Christ. So what was the fault with the, with the Old Testament um, sacrificial system? In Hebrews chapter 9, one chapter over, we're going to jump ahead just a little bit. And I want to look at verses 9 and 10. And it says this. It says, according to this arrangement, the Old Testament arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It doesn't change our heart. It only deals with food and drinks and various washings, regulations for the body. That's all external stuff that were imposed until the time of reformation, until the time when Jesus showed up. So here's what he's saying. Why do we even have the Old Testament law? If the law couldn't fix us, if the law couldn't change our hearts, then why do we have the law? He says those things were imposed from the outside. They were things that dealt with our behavior and, and, and washings and, and cleansings and regulations for the body. And those things were imposed until the time of reformation took place. The, the Old Testament covenant couldn't cleanse our conscience, he says. Couldn't change our guilty conscience. And here's the problem, is that guilt creates separation, distance between two people. When, when a person feels guilty, they, they withdraw and they pull back for, their, for fear of, of being exposed. And, and, and that guilt remains, and, 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 um, and that guilt creates distance, and that, that guilt creates fear. Fear that either you're going to reject me or you're going to retaliate against me. And so the guilt that remains creates fear, and, and that creates separation. And the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. So Jesus came to show us what perfect love looked like. And that was to capture our heart and to change our heart. Some people will use fear 
evangelism. I don't know if that's a term. It's just something that, that it may be. I don't know, but it's something that makes sense to me, this fear evangelism. Let me scare the hell out of you so that you will say a prayer and call yourself a Christian. And it's for that, for in that type of evangelism, there, there's not much mention about the love of Christ. It's just about this fear of if you don't, then you're going to go to hell. Some of you may be a, a victim of that. I think I was for years. Where you, you, you hear week after week this hellfire and brimstone, and if you don't repent and you don't do this and you don't do that, then you're going to spend eternity in hell, and you're going to die, and you're going to go to hell. And let me tell you what hell's like, and it's horrible. And if you don't want to do that, then just say this prayer, and everything's going to be great. Anybody ever heard that story? I, I did. That's what I grew up on. The problem with that is it's fear-driven, and fear does not create love. I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to say a prayer, and then that's going to be it. And, and, and for some of you, that may be where you were raised and what you were taught. And, and the problem with that is that it doesn't work. It, it produces an external compliance, but it cannot change your heart. Let me ask those of you that are married this question, and don't answer it out loud because you might get in trouble. Okay? Did you get married for fear of being alone? Or did you get married because you were in love? Two totally different reasons for getting married. There are some people, honestly, that get married for fear of being alone. Well, this, this, is, this is not my dream person, but you know, sometimes you just got to settle and you got to take something or else you're going to end up being an old maid, being all alone. And they get married for just fear of being alone. Most of us, however, don't get married out of fear. We get married out of love. We find somebody that, that we fall in love with, and when we fall in love with them, then, then and everything begins to change. I know that when I met Janet, and she told me that I had to marry her, it was fear. It was just fear. She said, if you don't, you will die alone without me. You believe that, Charles, yeah. That wasn't it at all, was it? Spent some time this week just thinking back. It's coming up on, I don't know how many years, Janet, since I first met you. It's been a day or two. But I still remember sitting in the fellowship hall at First Baptist Church Lake Charles. I had been invited to be a speaker at a, a youth conference, and I was there early and waiting, and Janet was the first one to walk in the room. And I remember praying, Lord, the first one, that's it. I'm desperate. She walked in the room. And I met her, and it wasn't instant. Uh, but I'll tell you this, the very first date that she and I ever went on, I knew that night. I knew. She was unlike any person I'd ever met. And something in that encounter and in that moment captured my heart. And it's never let go. Growing up, my, ter- my parents taught me what it meant to appreciate people, what it meant to value people, what it meant to treat people kind and nice and considerate and all those things. And, and growing up in a home with three boys, uh, that was a challenge for mom to get us to love each other and to like each other and to treat each other nice. And sometimes we did that under fear. If you don't, your life will not go well. 
I can remember being in arguments with my brothers and mom and dad, you know, tell your brother you love him. And you're like, I don't. <laughs> you don't understand. You're asking me to lie. Tell him. Tell him you love him. Give your brother a hug. And you're like, oh, my gosh. That's forced from the outside. It was not genuine. It was not real. It made mom and dad happy for a few minutes. Hi, mom, by the way. Uh, uh, yeah, she hears all my confessions. This is terrible because they listen in. Um, but here's, here's the thing. It, w- it was forced from the outside, but that did not change my heart. Now, it was either to tell your brother you love him or you're going to your room. Well, I didn't want to go to my room, so what do you do? I love you, and you walk on out of the room, okay? Did that change my heart? Not at all. So there was the law. Here's what you're going to do. But it doesn't change the heart. But those things that she taught me about being kind and considerate and and appreciative of others, all those kind of things, prepared me for the day that I met Janet. Because now I knew what it was or what it looked like to be kind, to be thoughtful, to be appreciative of somebody. Nobody had to come up and tap me on the shoulder after I met Janet and said, hey, you ought to be nice to that girl. There was something inside of me that wanted to do that. There was something going on inside of me that drove me to do that. It came from inside, not from outside. It wasn't my mom showing up on my date and saying, hey, hey, say this, do that, buy her this, take her hair. There was something inside that, that, that stirred up in me. And this is what the, the writer of Hebrews is trying to describe to us today, is that if your relationship with Jesus is all about coming to church and some pastor doing you a favor by telling you three more things you ought to do, that's not it. We ought to be gathered together week after week talking about what it just means to love Jesus more. And there ought to be a desire in us when we gather together and and even when we're alone in our homes reading our Bible to say, Lord, just help me to love you more. It's so much more about being than it is doing. When the being takes place, when when you figure out your being and and, and what that purpose is and, and that inward motivation, guess what happens? All that other stuff takes care of itself. I don't know how to say this. I have spent a large portion of my time in ministry telling people what to do. Here's three things you need to do. Here's four things. If you want to be a good Christian, here's four things that you ought to do. And all of that is external. And it doesn't change our hearts. It can conform your behavior. But then, instead of just being a lost person... You become a good lost person if your heart doesn't change. So what happens here in the book of Hebrews, he's trying to say to us, Jesus comes to offer us something better than the law could ever offer us. The law could give us external conformity, but it could not turn our heart back to Jesus. It could not turn our heart back to the Lord. But he says in verse 8, look at this. He says there, there's a fault with, with the, the, the law, the, cur- the first covenant, and then there's a fault with the people. The fault with them was that their hearts never turned. Their hearts never turn back to God. So verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the day's coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It's not like the covenant, he says, 
that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. You know why? Because their hearts were never changed. Listen, guys, if you come to church, and, and, and I'm so glad that you're here. I mean, please hear, hear my heart. I want to give you more than just three more things you need to add to your to-do list. I want to live before you a love of the Lord that's, that's red hot, that's genuine, that's internal, working outward instead of outward trying to make a penetration inward. I want to show you not just what a Christian looks like. The law could do that. But I want to show you a real Christian. I want you to come and, and, and not just feel guilty for what you've done, but to realize that that guilt has been removed through what Jesus has done for us. And that's what this new covenant that, that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. He says, those people in the Old Testament, they couldn't continue in my covenant. Their hearts never changed. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Here's the new covenant, he says. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Look at the heart change. Old Testament law was this law that was imposed from the outside. Jesus says here, I'm going to put my laws into their hearts, into their minds. And then look at the relationship. I will be their God, and they will be my people. There's that intimate relationship, that emphasis moving from doing into being. And he says this, he says, And they shall not teach each other, each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. What's that mean? Does that mean we don't need to do discipleship? Nobody needs to tell anybody else what it means to walk with God. That's not what he's saying at all. But he's putting his law into our hearts and into our minds. He's calling us into this intimate relationship with God. And then he's saying because of that, you don't need to have external force. You don't have to use guilt and condemnation to motivate people to walk with Jesus. You need to show them the love of God. You don't have to each one tell his neighbor Know the Lord. It's not forced from without. It's coming from within. Why? Because God's placed his spirit in us as believers. That's the difference. Is that this old old covenant forced it from the outside. And all it could do, the best it could do, was to change an outward behavior. To keep people from killing each other. That's what it could do. Since this new covenant is different. It's a covenant based upon grace. It's a covenant that works from the inside out. It changes your heart. And it allows you then to see everything else begin to change. If your relationship with the Lord is a struggle and a burden, and it's a constant thing of, of you just constantly feeling like you've got you've to constantly do it all yourself, and, and if you don't, you just feel this ton of guilt that comes over you, this is a message for you. To say this relationship, this new covenant that we have with the Lord is not about guilt. It's about grace. It's not about you being bombarded with this this, this have to do. It's giving you the, the, the picture of what it can be like when you fall in love. I was in a relationship for three, three and a half years before I met Janet. And it was a girl that was a nice girl. She really was. But it was work. 
And it was hard. And I was constantly having to make myself do nice things. Make myself do these things that just, it wasn't flowing from within. It was just what I'd been taught that a person's supposed to do. And it was external coming in. But when I met Janet and my heart was engaged and my heart was transformed, it was no longer work. Marriage is, is work, and I'm not saying that it's, it's always easy. But there's a difference when it comes from within than when it just comes from without. A lot of religion today, guys, is, is this outward pressure. But the problem is if a heart doesn't change, then, then you haven't changed. If the heart doesn't change, then nothing's really changed. And it won't be long till we be right back to where we were. We come into this world with a natural bent towards sin. If, if left to our own, that's where we're going to go. That direction to, to sin. And I can take the steering wheel and I can try to pull this thing back to where the Bible says that it's supposed to be. And I can fight it and fight it and fight it and try to keep it between the ditches. But the minute I let go of the steering wheel, guess what's going to happen? So go right back to where it was. So I can spend my whole life doing this, trying to keep my life in between the ditches, trying to keep from having an affair, trying to keep from messing up too bad, trying to keep from destroying my kids, trying to keep my marriage together. I can, I can spend my whole life fighting against this natural bent. Or I can come to Jesus and say, you know what? My heart is bent that way. And I need a new heart. I need you to, 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 to reset the GPS of my heart and to set my heart on you and then I can take my hands off the wheel then I, I, I've got a, a realignment you know uh, Haley coming comes over an alignment you know it's their cars veering one way or the other and you have to make an alignment and get it get it realigned and if you don't then every time you let go of the wheel your car's going to move that direction it's it's that kind of a thing and what God does is he realigns our heart so that when you let go of the wheel and you take a deep breath and you rest in him, life continues in that direction. And that's the reset that Jesus came to do. And that's what he's saying here. They'll, they'll know me from the least of them to the greatest. In chapter 9 of Hebrews, in verses 13 and 14, he, he talks to us about some of this and how it, how it all kind of fits together. He says, if the blood of bulls, of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons, all the stuff they used to do in the old temple, if that could sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that's the outward. It could create this outward conformity, he's saying. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God? He says, look, if the Old Testament could, could create an, an outward, I want you to understand this new covenant is all about creating an inward. It's, it's letting God reset, realign your heart so that it's not as much of a struggle. It's not a forced thing, but it's natural. It's, it's, it's what you're wired by God to do and to be. My regret is that it's taken me a long time to understand this. And then I've, I look back over the years and years of preaching, 
And I see a lot of sermons that are, here's four more things you need to do. And I apologize to you guys for that. You have sat under that for years and years. But you know what? Grace is so much better than that. Grace grabs our heart. And as it grabs our heart, it, it, it realigns us and it puts us back in a right relationship with the Lord. And grace is what sets us free from all of that. There's a passage in Romans chapter 8 that talks about the fact that this grace lifts the condemnation, removes the guilt. It puts us back in a right relationship with God so that we can be at peace and at home with him. And that's what this Easter is really all about. In Romans chapter 8, it says this. It's written again to believers. He's saying there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's talking about believers. The condemnation, the sentencing, and the punishing, it's all been lifted. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That old covenant, all it could promise you was you do this or you die. But this new covenant is really all about life. It's not about the fear of God striking you dead. How many times in the Old Testament do we see somebody stepping out of line and God just taking them out? Some of the priests of that day would get out of line and God would strike them down. And they live with this constant fear. That if they didn't perform, then they were going to be taken out. The new covenant, guys, is not about that. It's the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So what the law was not able to accomplish, the, the changing of our hearts, what the law could not do, Jesus did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what he's saying to us is this, that, that we can choose to, to live trying to, to manage this thing and to keep it between the ditches, or we can come to Christ and ask him to realign our hearts and to, to, to make us brand new on the inside. In the Old Testament, he says, I will come in that day and I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you this heart of flesh, a heart that beats after me. And so today, if you come and you're searching for peace with God, you're here today because you want to be at peace with God. But if you come today and you're searching for peace with God and all I can give you is three more things to do, to be a better person, if that's all I do, then I'll fail you today. If all I do is give you this three more things that you can do to be a better person, then I'll leave you unchanged, even empty and lacking. The whole purpose of this passage that we're looking at today is to say to us that that our works can't bring us to peace with God. Only Jesus' sacrifice can bring us to this place of peace. No amount of law-keeping can cleanse our conscience. No amount of law-keeping can remove the guilt. No amount of good deeds, right thoughts, can lift the condemnation or change my heart. It's critical that we look to Jesus to change our heart. Say, well, how does Jesus do that? In Philippians chapter 2, 
verse 13. It says, it's God that works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's God that changes our heart and gives us that desire to walk with him, to obey him, to live in, in, in fellowship with him. It's God that has to place that in our hearts. And when he does, it's like falling in love. And, and, and your heart is drawn that way. And, and your whole motivation for everything you do changes. The law forced compliance. But Jesus and grace, guys, it changes our hearts. And it puts us at peace with God. So as we close today, the way I see it is this. We've got, we got three options for those who want to be at peace with God. The first option is to say, I've tried that, and I have struggled, and I have fought this steering wheel my whole life, and I am worn out, and I'm taking my hands off, and if I go in the ditch, I just go in the ditch. I'm just done. And just throw up your hands and quit. That's one option. I'm going to stop searching. I'm going to just give up. But something inside of us won't let us give up. The second option we have is to try harder. To make peace with God. I'm just going to grip it tighter. And I'm going to hold on stronger. And, and, and I'm just going to, I'm going to fight the good fight. And I'm not going to let go. I'm going to do better. I'm going to be worthy. I'm going to try to earn God's love. But the Bible says that's not possible. Guys, listen. If that was possible, you'd already be there. And the definition of insanity is what? doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting somehow to get different results. So I can stop altogether. Or I can go just the opposite and I can try even harder. Or the third option is I can say, you know what, I'm going to turn to Jesus. I'm going to accept that his sacrifice on my behalf was enough. I, I don't need the grace that saves me plus the works that keep me. It's not grace plus. It's just grace. Now, that doesn't mean that we run wild. It doesn't mean that we just go off on our own. You wouldn't do that in your, in your marriage. Just because you're married doesn't mean you just run off and do everything that you want to do. That marriage comes with a commitment, and you're making a commitment to that person. And, and, and when you and I come into a relationship with Jesus, we come by grace, but we come with a heart that is set on him and say, Lord, you, put, you set my heart on you, and I want to live as best I can to glorify you and to honor you in, in what I do. And so we turn to Jesus. We experience his grace and his peace, and we ask him to transform us from the inside out, something that the law never could do. And when we do that, and we watch God begin to work, he talks to us here at the end of chapter 8 about what that looks like and how it, how it winds up. And look what he says here at the, at the end of chapter 8. He says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. It's no longer needed. It's outdated. All that external pressure is no longer needed when there's internal motivation. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I was meeting with a guy this week, and we were talking, and 
not sure if he's a believer yet or not, but he's, he's really curious and he's really talking. And he says, the way I understand the Bible is that, that the Old Testament was all about the law and that Jesus came to set us free from the law. And then he asked this question. He says, why is it that if in the Old Testament they had the law, in the New Testament Jesus brings grace and sets us free by grace, he says, why is it that so many churches run right back to legalism? And I said, man, that's a great question. He says, why don't we run right back to the very thing that Jesus came to set us free from? That's what the writer of Hebrews is asking. You, you, you were slaves in Egypt, and you've been set free. And now you say, let's go back to Egypt? We were slaves to sin, and Jesus came and set us free from sin. Why would we run back to that old system. The writer of Hebrews says it's obsolete. It's fading away. There's, there's no more need for that sacrificial system. It's just a need for grace. And for that grace to transform our hearts and drive us to Jesus. Have you experienced that grace? Maybe some of you went through that fear evangelism kind of like I did. You know, where you just were scared to death to go to hell. And so you said a prayer one day just to, to miss hell. Listen, what we get with Jesus is so much more than missing hell. So much more. It's a relationship with Jesus right now that will continue on forever. It, it's not about religion. It's not about all these things that religion have made it. It's about knowing Jesus personally and just falling in love with him. And when that happens and when he captures your heart, Everything else begins to change. Everything else begins to change. I hope you know Jesus this morning, but, but I hope you know him as this, this giver of grace that came to, to, to capture your heart and to call you to himself so that you can have a relationship with him that then transforms everything else on the outside. Jesus always starts on the inside, and he works out. If you don't have that this morning, man, I pray that you would consider that. I'm going to be hanging out here after church, and I would love to visit with you and to talk with you about what it looks like to have that kind of a relationship with Jesus Christ and, and what needs to take place in order for you to enter that relationship and know Jesus in that way. I pray that if you don't have that yet, man, that we could talk and we could visit and that you could explore what it looks like. It's not about just going to church. It's not about just checking another thing off your list. It's about having a relationship with Jesus that, that drives everything else that you do. If you don't have that today, man, I pray this Easter Sunday that you could come to know Jesus in that way. Let's pray together.